Conceptions about that. It is in order to gain power over people, they, the people who like to have power, the Cains, the Canaanites, the the Nimrods of the world, need to gain power over your mind, and they do that with ideas. There are a lot of speculations as to what the tree of life is and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these two trees have opposing purposes, and we are not to eat or use that tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a source, but only the tree of life. And we could do probably 10 shows or 20 shows on just that, but uh, a lot of people speculate as to what the tree of life is. Some say it is the Holy Spirit, and it's a representative of that, and and we talk about that in a number of our articles uh, and in some books that we have coming up. But uh, to get an idea of what the tree of life is, this source of divine revelation, Christ said he was going to build his church on revelation, not by the knowledge of blood, I mean, uh, not by flesh and blood. Uh, and they were going to... Uh, Write his laws upon your minds and upon your hearts directly. This is revelation. That's the tree of life. That is the Holy Spirit entering into you and guiding you. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's flesh and blood. That's your mind. That's what you think. That's your opinion. In a book that we have coming up, I talk about the word dogma used to be just an individual's opinion. That's what it meant. Dogma didn't mean something that was necessarily true. It meant something that somebody thought was true. And it's not, you know, we have this idea that dogma today, that's law, that's dogma, that's fact. No, dogma is just somebody's opinion. At least that's the way it used to, that's what it meant. If you find it in the original Greek text, that's what it meant. Just somebody's opinion. So what's the truth? The truth is the truth. And we all have opinions about the truth, and I always say that God's opinion of the truth is the truth. Our opinion of the truth might be the truth, might not be the truth. So the knowledge of good and evil is us figuring it out. It's our minds calculating an answer based on what we accumulate as information. 
And there are people who artistic people who draw pictures of the tree of life, and they have a a snake wrapping around it. It almost looks like a double helix. And then up in the branches, the branches actually form the the brain of a person. You can kind of see the form of a brain of a person in the branches. And that, to some degree, that symbolically expresses what the tree of knowledge is. It's you figuring out what is good and what is evil on your own without tapping into the tree of life, the Holy Spirit. So once you understand that, who can say they have not eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Who can say that they eat only of the tree of life? And in our series about the beastie, we see that there is a spirit of the beast that lives and dwells in the in the hearts and minds of people. And it gets in there and dwells in there because of the rationalization of people picking fruit from the tree of knowledge. And so people who want to manipulate you manipulate what you know. They they only let certain fruits, they prune your trees that only certain branches will grow there so that you will only have this fruit to pick from. Yea, but for the lack of knowledge, you might be saved. Because you have not right knowledge, you could be seduced into evil so that you become a worker of iniquity, so that you become one of the beasties that make the beast powerful. You serve the beast, not the Lord of creation. And so, anyway, we talked in one of the, I think it was show 19 on the Mark of the Beast, we talked about Ubuntu, which is a, a African word that has to do with, uh, and we gave an analogy of, of these uh, small children who were offered a, a bowl of fruit, and uh, whoever got there first could share in it. And, of course, they all grabbed hands and ran to it together so that they all arrived at the same time because they have this idea that one cannot be happy unless all are happy. That's a very tribal way of looking at things, that you, you want everything you have, you want to share with the other members of your tribe. The problem with tribalism, it, tribalism in itself is a good thing. It's like congregationalism. You know, it's your group, and that that's a, has a real value in society because we're gregarious people by nature. But when we become sectarian in our tribal approach, our uh, denominational in our pri- uh, tribal uh, quest for brotherhood, then we have tribe warring against tribe. And in the Old Testament, they had something called the sacrifice of the red heifer that was to overcome the danger of that tendency in mankind, to identify with his small group so much so that he alienates those groups around him. And so they had the sacrifice of the red heifer where they were to take a sacrifice outside of the camp and completely burn it up outside the camp. And, of course, we've already done many studies, and we have books out like uh, Thy Kingdom Comes and and Artifice and Language Land is one of our pamphlets on this, that the old altars of clay and stone, where you were an altar of clay, 
and the altars of stone were actually men who gathered, friends, men you trusted, men of charity, that you sacrifice what you produce during the year to give to them to take care of the social welfare of society. That's what the altars were. It had nothing to do with just burning up sheep and God really liking the smell. Because I I burned up a dead sheep once. We did this as an experiment. It just died natural causes. And I can guarantee you, you don't want to be there when that sheep's burning up. It's actually a dangerous place to be because there are certain laws of physics in a sheep that when it starts burning up, you want to stand way back. Because it starts to explode. It has methane gases in it and everything else. So uh, there's nothing, you know, the the whole sacrificial idea, The even Passover, when they had Passover, they ate the sheep. They invited enough people into their homes so that they could eat an entire sheep in one night. And if there was anything left over, they just burned it up then, which meant it went to waste. And knowing the frugality and, and the shortage of uh supplies and the value of meat that they would make sure they invited enough people to eat everything so there weren't no leftovers. I had a neighbor once who says that he had a big dog and he said it doesn't cost anything to feed the dog. He lives on the leftovers. And I thought about our table. When we're done eating, there aren't no leftovers. <laughs> our dogs would have, you couldn't have fed a chihuahua on our leftovers. But I'd see his kids heap up big dishfuls of food and then half of it would just go back they'd just send it back well that we didn't have that rule in our house you take all you want but eat all you take we didn't waste food it's not good as dennis amena says to waste food and so anyway that was their attitude so they at passover they knew they couldn't be any leftovers because they had to be burned up so they made sure that they invited enough people into their home for passover which was part of the strategy of that that holiday, that holy day, is to bring people from one home into another home, which is Ubuntu. But if Ubuntu does not, the spirit of Ubuntu does not go out to the next group, then it isn't the love of Christ. It, you have to love the next group as much as you love your own. Therefore, the sacrifice of the red heifer was you not only had to sacrifice to take care of the needy in your society through your living altars of charity. You had to take care of the needy of other societies. You had to make sacrifices that were completely given up, bread cast upon the far waters, so that you would not become sectarian, denominational, uh, Christ came, they say he only came for the uh, lost sheep. And there is a place where he talks about that. And he actually talks about that in order to get an idea across because the very person he was telling this to, he ended up helping anyway. And, uh, and he was trying to make a point that, you know, you don't just help people because they want help. You don't just help people because they say they need help. You help the deserving poor, those that have taken a step towards repentance. Those are the ones that, you know, the the drug addict who intends to be taking drugs tomorrow 
it should not be fed today. It's the drug addict who has repented, turned around. You know, the lazy bum whose welfare check ran out before the end of the month because he spent it on cigarettes and and, uh, steak. He should not be fed at the food kitchen. He should fast for those last few days of the month until he gets his next welfare check. Because then he might begin to wise up. So anyway, it's very important that how your charity is distributed. So the choice of who you're going to have to take care of the needy of your society is very important. And those men were called friends. They, I mean, the, the word for stone, the gathering of stones, which was your altar, was a gathering of friends. And there's a lot of misconceptions about what they were doing with these altars and just burning up these these cattle and these sheep. Were they? Or were they cooking them and redistributing the meat so that everyone could eat and everyone would be healthy? Because they could not be happy unless they shared and made sure that everyone did well. I mean, think of the Israelites taking off and leaving uh, the comforts and confines of Egypt across the Sinai and traveling up and around the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. They, there's a great deal of evidence that they actually travel a great deal, uh, like crossing the Red Sea and then going to the south and moving around and there were you'll find everywhere along this route you'll find stones with feet prints on the stone where they have chiseled out around their foot you know with marking it like uh, petroglyphs because there was this prophecy that wherever their foot treadeth uh, they will possess the land and uh, based on that they should uh, possess the entire Saudi Arabian peninsula <laughs> But uh, we don't want to carry these metaphors too far because it is those who have the spirit of Abraham who live by faith, not those who live by the ways of Egypt. And uh, it isn't it isn't necessarily a bloodline, but it's those who lay down their blood. Even the word bless, to bless something, means to bloody it. That's what it used to mean. Where you give of your blood, your sweat, your toil, your sacrifice. Your see when a when a sheep herder gives a sheep a way to help the needy of society, he's literally giving away his blood because he has a symbiotic relationship with his herd. He's up at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning to be there and protect his sheep and to feed them. He sweats in the summertime to cut the hay to provide for his sheep. He he will make sure his sheep have water to drink. He is tending them. He is caring for them. He is not forcing them to eat. He is providing an environment which fattens them, makes them fertile and strong. And he maintains the whole herd because he loves the whole herd. And when he gives up part of it, he gives up part of himself. So that idea, that the metaphor of that activity is played out in a minister of Christ. 
Christ came that the whole world might be saved. That's what it says. Not just the lost sheep, but the whole world might be saved. He came also to be king for the lost sheep because what was Israel supposed to be but the high priests of a nation? That's right. They were to be the high priests of a nation, of the nations of the world. That's what they were to be. Uh, what is that priest? And and we'll talk about that more. But basically, a priest was to receive the offerings of the people and rightly distribute the bread from house to house. He was to understand the value of righteous charity to help and strengthen the poor. Much of the charity of the world today, which is often called charity but not really, such as social welfare, is not really charity because they're not, nobody gives anything except what's been, they've already taken away from somebody else by exercising authority. So that's not really charity, but that's what we use, you know, posing as charity, stuff posing as charity. And uh, that does not strengthen the poor. In almost every case, it often weakens the poor and weakens society. And there are many different ways it, it does that. And in this this series, we're probably going to be looking at that more and more. Somebody uh, on their webpage had a quote from a man by the name of Frederick Bestiat, who wrote the law. And uh, that was their favorite quote. It was the only quote they had on their Facebook site. And I'll quote it. Socialism, like the ancient ideas from which it springs, confuses the distinction between government and society. I'll add to that. It actually confuses the difference between government and church. And maybe we'll see how that works as we go on. He also said, as a result of this, every time we object to a thing being done by government, the socialists conclude that we object to its being done at all. We disapprove of the state education. This is this is Frederick Bastiat. This is a long time ago. He says, disapprove of state education. Then the socialists say that we are opposed to any education. We object to a state religion. And then we have to define religion. We'll do that in a little bit, but we'll go on. Then the socialist says that we want no religion at all. We object to a state-enforced equality. Then they say that we are against equality and so on and so on. It is as if the socialists were to accuse us of not wanting persons to eat because we do not want the state to raise the grain. No, the socialist does not understand. The, the freedom fighter does not often understand 
the you know there are people out there free state project and stuff and there's a debate in in the world out there there are people who consider themselves anarchists meaning government without the state in other words people who are self-governing we have this tendency to think that an anarchist is someone who wants uh, chaos and violence but uh, the anarchists in Spain were building hospitals and schools and roads they were simply doing it with free will offerings much as the early church operated. The early church took care of all the social welfare needs of Christians because they were Christians. If you got the baptism of Jesus Christ instead of the baptism of Herod, you were kicked out of the social welfare system of Herod because that system was run through the temple, which was a government building, and it was a way in which they took care of the needy of their society through what they had always used, which was Corbin. Corbin meaning sacrifice. People sacrifice something into a the hands of another, the priests of society, to take care of the needy of that society by those contributions. Herod had set up such a system and they called the Pharisees called it Corbin because it was involving the sacrifice of the individuals. But the sacrifice that you had to pay in was compelled by statutory law. In order to compel that by statutory law, they had to write up the law, and then you had to agree to it, whatever the terms were. And by agreeing to it, you became subject to it, according to God's law. Now, they could take from you what they decided was good and redistributed according to what they decided was good and punish you for not giving to that treasury, which is also the word Corbin is also translated treasury, although it means sacrifice. But when you take all your sacrifices and you put them in a box, then that is your box of sacrifices. So therefore they can call that treasury. Because the you know the word is just representing the idea that though that free will offering and it's free will because you freely signed up then after that you had to pay in it was a free will offering before but you got to choose every time you gave once you signed up to the new agreement the new deal that they were offering that Herod was offering through his ministers you no longer had the right to choose what you were going to give. Somebody else had that right to choose for you. They got to decide what was good and evil, and you had to pay in. You thought this was going to give you a certain amount of liberty, but it actually brought you into bondage, which is what uh, Peter is talking about. When Peter talks about uh, the... uh, what brings the the people into bondage? You know, Jesus says in Matthew twenty three twenty three, "Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith." And faith isn't just what you think; it's actually what is convicting you to act. At least that's the way it used to be defined until somebody got the idea to redefine it. These ought you have to have done and not to leave 
the and and better to leave the other undone. But what's happened in society is that you have have gone another way that's not cast up and has brought you back into the bondage of Egypt. But so what's the way out? And that's what we're going to talk about. How do we turn around and, and what does the path look like that takes us back to liberty and We'll talk about that when we come back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And we were talking about Ubuntu and we were talking about socialism and uh, the Ubuntu, there's an Ubuntu party. Michael Tellinger in uh, South Africa has got the Ubuntu party, which is, uh, he promotes contributionism. And of course, that we're very much in favor of that. But, uh, you know, I don't really know the mechanics of his uh, Ubuntu party, but... Uh, I see a lot of talking in their system and in web pages uh, surrounding some of the things that they're talking about. And they talk about the people, the government, raping the people and taking their the, the all the value of the land. And they're very much against corporations. And it almost sounds like they're not really uh, as interested in private ownership of property. And, of course, there really isn't any private ownership of property. There's a semblance of it today. In most of these countries, there's a legal title, which is not really private ownership. Uh, it's a public ownership uh, where you have uh, a right to use something as long as you pay a use tax. If you're paying any kind of a tax on property you think you own, you don't own it. That's why you have to pay the tax. You, you're paying a use tax because you don't own the use. And if you don't own the use, then you only have a legal title. And the legal title does not include the beneficial interest. And we explain all that in the book, Covenants of the Gods, how the law actually works, which most people are completely ignorant of. And we understand because they don't put that fruit up in the tree of knowledge easily obtainable. It's there. But you have to have to kind of work for it, you know. It's kind of like uh, picking blackberries. There's thorns out there, and it's... Sometimes it's really hard to get to the nicest blackberries because of all the thorns. So people just don't get them. They pick the easy stuff. But you have to be a little bit like a bear willing to walk right in uh, to those thorny bushes and pick the, those berries. But uh, in looking out, trying to find out exactly what this Ubuntu party is doing and some of the things that they talk about, I see that uh, a quote in one of the articles that says, I don't know how they decide... Who gets a house, said uh, Gall, who works part-time as a domestic servant. I've been on the waiting list all this time, but I never hear anything. In the meantime, I have to live in someone's backyard, and I can get kicked out at any time. So anyway, this is this was her complaint. She only works part-time as a domestic servant. Uh, now that may be all she can get. And there's a reason why that's all she can get. But working part-time as a domestic servant should not afford you a home of your own. Working full-time as a domestic servant, you should be able to get something, maybe an apartment or something of your own. But you have to realize that if you give her a house, somebody has to pay for that. 
And if you're making somebody pay for it, it's not Ubuntu. It's socialism. Ubuntu is where everybody agrees to hold each other's hands and work together to make something happen. It isn't where you handcuff everybody together and make somebody build her a house for free while she's only working part-time. Somebody's going to have to do the overtime with that kind of... Uh, and Now, that it, it's difficult to tell from just one phrase, but that's what you're reading and that's what I'm seeing over and over again, that somehow other people think that other people owe them a house. Now, I will agree that if you look at some of the... Uh, uh, platinum mines and gold mines in South Africa, you have 30,000 people working in one of the largest mines in the world, and uh, those people go home to slums. Now, why do they go home to slums? What What are the causes and effect of this? Are Is it a, a cultural thing? Is is the, the, the mining companies taking advantage of these workers? Uh, is it oppressive? Uh, See, there's nothing really wrong with corporations. There's something wrong with giving a corporation more rights than a man. But the fact is a corporation is just a gathering of men. It's just a way in which men gather together in order to get something done. And there may be lessons that men need to learn in society so that they become a body working together. You know, one of the things that you see in South Africa that when they were uh, having riots about um, some of the abuses and some of the uh, apartheid uh, uh, restrictions is that even amongst the poor, they would develop factions and be fighting amongst themselves. You know, tribal factions would enter into it. You know, Ubuntu for our group, but not for your group kind of thing. And you see, then you know, when you see that, you know the spirit of love for one another is not universal. It's only for your group. And, you know, this is where wars begin. It begins on these small levels and then expands up. And the guy who can hold the biggest group together often wins. But not necessarily so, because the more righteous one will actually make the difference. 15% of the households earn enough to secure a mortgage in South Africa, while 60% earn less than 3,500 Rand a month and can uh, qualify uh, for state housing, for state housing. That means the state's going to provide you with a house. Well, the state doesn't usually do that of its own work or effort. It simply takes a portion of somebody else's effort. It says the remaining 25%, including most teachers, nurses, police officers, and soldiers, have had access to neither. They don't get state housing, you know, So, and they don't have enough money to procure a mortgage, you know, and their salaries. This is teachers, nurses, police officers, soldiers, etc. But... Somebody who is working part-time as a domestic servant is expecting a house. Something's wrong with that. These other people have worked and they are in service-oriented, full-time jobs, sometimes risking their life, and they don't get a free house. And they can't get paid enough to afford a house. But somebody who's working part-time as a domestic is complaining because they're not getting a house. That's not Ubuntu. That's socialism. 
And you have to make that distinction. And they're not making that distinction in their minds because they're picking the fruit they want to eat from the tree of knowledge. They're not really receiving the truth. Uh, it says, Jody Lee, who lives in an outbuilding formerly uh, used as serving quarters on his parents' property in the lower middle class of Cape Town, suburbs of uh, Blackie, is caught in a bind common amongst the entrants of South African middle class. They earn too much to qualify for free government housing, yet not enough to buy their own. So you see this... Uh, this is what happens when you have the state as a bureaucracy who has no interest except for its own popularity in in a massive collective effort to provide free homes, free health care, free education, etc. The church plan of Christ, the kingdom plan of Christ, is that each individual congregation gather together and then those congregations gather together. And they, on an individual basis, through free will choice, without the power of the state, they still retain the power of the state in their own lives. Most people don't today. Most of the people have relinquished the power of the state to the state. You know, that's where the state gets its power. It doesn't get it, you know, it, it, the state isn't born with power. You create the state. You give it power. You incorporate the state by taking part of your right to choose and giving it to the state. So when you do that, you're literally incorporating the state. And so what is it going to favor, you or the corporations it creates? It's going to favor the corporations it creates because it, it, birds of a feather flock together. And they scratch each other's back. And But it only is taking place because you have relinquished your right to choose to someone else. You should have been building houses for one another. You should have been educating your children for one another, not incorporating the effort, but making yourself a part of the body of Christ, which does things through free will offerings through free will choice and caring for one another. This is this is the way of Christ, is to break bread amongst yourselves and share with each other. It goes on to say in one article, quite clearly the, the continuous allocation of grants for free housing to the poorest of the poor is unsustainable and yet, but going forward, the subsidy will empower more people to become real estate owners, to become real participants in the capital market. Uh, but it will have its drawbacks. It will have its uh, undermining reality in society because those that are working the hardest are receiving the least reward. You know, the rich are not working that hard. They're, they're rich already, and their money's working for them, which is really means that they, they're providing some means to make somebody else sweat on their behalf. And that's good. That's good that you have money to invest and build a business because you've either saved it or it's been passed down to you, and you, you've built this business, and now you can offer employment. But the way in which you do that, 
the way in which you take care of the needy in your midst. And this is one of the things that uh, his church is going to be working on, is showing people how to bring the kingdom spirit into business and to employment of those who who need work. And you, to be an entrepreneur in a way that strengthens those people who want to be teachers, nurses, police, officers, soldiers, or whatever. You know, I, I'm using the list that they had. But, I mean, to, if you want to be a meat cutter, if you want to be a, a contractor or a home builder, where do you go? You should be able to go to church uh, to borrow the means of building your business. And the church should be right there helping you figure out how to do that. Not to make the church a success, but to make you a success. And as you are made a success, you see, this is what people don't realize, is that these ministers of congregation are health, education, and welfare. These ministers of congregations, what they will receive for their efforts will come from the success and health and well-being of the people. The love that that minister expresses for the people of his congregation in helping and supporting them, not tickling their ears and making them feel good, but the effort that he expends by charity to them will come back to him by charity. So he has a vested interest in your success in business, as families. He wants to see your family stick together. Families that stick together are more, way more economical than families that, you know, you had a husband living in an apartment and trying to make enough money and coming home to an empty house to support his wife who's living in a house that he was trying to buy for his family because they've divorced. And he's trying to support the children while still working but has no moral support from his wife or from his children. That's not going to be efficient. He's maintaining two households. So he, you're going to want to see him stick together because that's the way God wants it. Because it makes sense. But the world doesn't care. Just like the world wants to provide a free house for somebody working part-time and people working full-time can't afford a house of their own. And yet that whole scenario is brought about by what people are now labeling social justice <laughs> it's 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 absurd it's crazy but you have to accept a crazy idea in order to get to the point where you actually think that makes sense and when you point out it's crazy they actually get very angry with you if you go to uh is it second peter uh where it says uh but there were false prophets also amongst the people, false teachers amongst the people, even as there shall be false teachers amongst you, who privately shall bring in damnable ideas, heresies, ideas that are false and that were, are destructive, even denying the Lord that bought, bought them, bought them, and bring upon themselves what destruction how did christ buy their freedom christ was named king here is the king of judea this is the king of judea this is the king of judea and these appointed men 
come out at Pentecost and say that, you know, we're the servants of Christ. They were the government of Christ, of the king. And they worked daily in the temple, and they went from house to house, rightly dividing the bread to the needy, strengthening the poor. Because now the bread could only be provided by free will offerings. They could not exercise authority one over the other. They returned the power of the state to the people in congregations and congregations of congregations. They lived by faith, by hope, by charity, tending amongst themselves to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. This is what early Christians were doing. They took care of all the social welfare needs of their society, not like Herod, not like the Pharisees, but through free will offerings and by faith, open charity. And right away they saw the daily ministration being neglected and they said they gathered amongst themselves and, and Peter said, you know, we're not going to run this business. And actually he talks about wait on tables, which means run the bank. We're not going to be in charge of that. We're going to put you in charge of that and you decide how much we're going to get so that we can go from house to house and rightly divide the bread. You must take back your responsibilities. And see, with our ministers, we've been having ministers meetings talking about, well, how do we do this? What does this look like in the world today? We can, we can look back, studying history. This is what we do often in our books. We're showing you the history of the kingdom of God, how it works from generation to generation. It works by choice in the hands of the people. And they choose what they're going to give to their ministers. And they choose which ministers they're going to give it to them because they're an actual free society. Our congregations are free uh, assemblies. They're not associations. They're not corporations. The only corporation in the kingdom of God that has any personality is the family husband and wife and their children that is the the building block of the society of of god you don't worry about that so much in a herd of sheep you know they they have you know all the bucks are mixed with all the use they try to separate out but there's a lot of hanky panky going on out there <laughs> because they're just interested in reproducing the whole herd that's fine for sheep but man was meant one man, one woman, raising a family. And that family, those children, fattening their parents. In other words, honoring their parents. Same word. Honor, fatten, same word in the Hebrew. But then each of those families care about the next family as much as themselves, so they gather together in a free assembly. But that free assembly, though it may have Ubuntu amongst it, it must also have that Ubuntu, that care, that love for one another to the next congregation. Any minister who isolates his congregation from the gathering of congregations is not following the ways of Christ. He's not going to be strengthening the poor. He is not going to be preaching the kingdom. He's just preaching his little congregation. So anyway, it tells us in, in Peter that many will follow the per, pernicious ways that 
uh, are swift to destruction. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. They'll think that those people who are taking care of one another through free will offerings are somehow undermining society. And so there's a, there's something that we need to do to prevent that from from even being testified of. Because our testimony, our confession, our daily work amongst ourselves and amongst those round about us outside the camp is overwhelmed by the love we have for one another as well as for those outside the camp. Now, how do we do that? Sacrifice of the red heifer. You know, in in talking about, you know, the future and the prophecies, they talk about the restoration of the temple and, and the sacrifice of the red heifer. And a lot of these people who have no idea what the Bible is talking about thinks it has to do with building a temple over there in some Middle Eastern country and uh, out of dead stone, and then killing red heifers. (laughs) That's what they actually think. Now, I I laugh because we've actually taken some time to find out what these things really mean. The temple's made of living stones. And the red heifer is what you sacrifice outside the camp to those who are not a part of your own system of tending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith, of tending to the social welfare of society through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. That's what you do inside the church. Taking care of all the social welfare needs of your people, even though you could demand payment from the world, the men who exercise authority, you could easily pray to them and say, give me what I have coming. I have paid into your system. Give me what I have coming. But you say no. I'm going to depend upon faith and hope and charity. And even though I paid in, I, I I waive my right to that. Can you do that? Well, probably not now because you haven't been seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You haven't been coming together in one accord as as Christ said and as Christ taught. It took years before the people were ready for Pentecost. Most of the people of the world today who say they believe in Jesus are nowhere near being ready for Pentecost of being cast out of one system and taking up the responsibility of Christ's system of faith, hope, and charity, or Paul's system of the perfect law of liberty. They're nowhere near ready for that. They didn't even know what that was. Their preachers aren't teaching them that. Their preachers are deluding them with these damnable heresies and denying the Lord that bought them. They actually have sold their congregations into bondage so that they could build their crystal cathedrals and their stone temples and their stone altars that are are made of dead stone. They don't provide the social welfare of their people. And is there any wonder? See, a real Christian doesn't believe in socialism. You know, the social compact that gives somebody the power to exercise authority, to practice religion. That's a, Governments today are religious institutions because governments today are providing the social welfare of society. Religion used to be how you fulfilled your duty 
to your fellow man, which means to provide for social welfare. That's what that's what it used to mean. Just 200 years ago, that's what it meant. But today, you think it means your opinion about God. Your dogma, which is nothing more than an opinion about God. No. That's not religion. Religion is how you love one another. And it has to be not only congregational, but congregations of congregations have to love one another. But he goes on to say in Peter that the many following the pernicious ways, and it says, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, make you human resources, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And now you are bound. Now if you want to be unbound and return to the salvation of Christ, you must turn around and start loving one another, caring for one another, taking care of one another in free assembly. By faith, open church, perfect law of liberty. Until then, may peace be upon your house. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking about the kingdom of God, and we're talking about socialism and democracy and being in bondage and being set free and uh, being a human resource and being nothing more than merchandise. If you belong to God, you belong to God. You are not merchandise, but you are his loving children and are loved by him. But if you are a worker of iniquity, then you will be cast out. If you are a foolish virgin who has remained separate and a virgin but have not trimmed your wick, have not not prepared for the wedding feast, the door will be slammed in your face. That sounds pretty mean, but there's messages in there, and and everyone who goes to church should learn those messages. And you should have preachers that are pointing out what the early church was doing, which is not being done today. The church is one form of government. What kind of form of government is it? It's not a government like the governments of the world because it doesn't have men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. It has men who call themselves benefactors 
but they don't exercise authority over the people. They depend upon free will offerings. You're going to get a different kind of society. It's going to change you if you live in a society that is dependent upon free will offerings of every individual and not some central authority that is exercising authority to provide for the needs of your society. Those are going to be two different kinds of society. They're going to bear different kind of fruit in that society. And where is the fruit of society? It's the children of society who grow up and become society because families produce families. And broken families produce broken families. And selfish families produce selfish families. And selfish people produce selfish people. And unselfish people produce unselfish people. But each generation must be given a choice. But in Egypt, they were not given a choice. They were in bondage because their parents had brought them into bondage because they sold themselves into bondage because they were not prepared for hard times. We talked in the last show about South Africa, how there are a great many poor in South Africa. A great many poor in South Africa. A great many who do not come together and realize that they have the power. The only time they come together is to strike or to... To force, why are not they coming together and those part-time servants who can't afford a house work full-time? Someone be an entrepreneur. Don't just give them a house in their backyard so they can get away with working part-time. But create an entrepreneurial situation where they are providing a service to society so that their part-time job as a servant will suddenly become overwhelmed with their full-time job of providing a service to the community. Industry, righteousness, serving one another will make you wealthy as a society. Maybe not as an individual always, but it will make you self-sustaining. They talk about democracy. I said somewhere along the way, in, in the book, The Higher Liberty, I say somewhere along the way, some people began to believe that we collectively had the right to decide what was good and what was evil. Not only for ourselves, but for our neighbor as well. And we called that right to decide democracy. When people say, you know, this is a democratic form of government, they have a tendency to think this means that you have a right to decide. But if that decision is collectively, you don't really decide. The mob decides. The majority decides. You get to cast your uh, bid into the decision. You get to ante up. You get to lay your bet down. But no matter how you look at it, 51% are the ones who are actually deciding, not you. You try to gather together and all have one purse and 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 decide what's best for everybody. But somebody's given power over somebody else, and power corrupts. 51% of the people can be corrupted. If we were all angels, as Madison refers to, then democracies would work. And someone said, and I probably got it written down somewhere, but uh, you know, democracy only works in heaven where they don't need it. 
in hell where they don't want it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the reality is democracy was looked down upon by most Americans. And in early America, the success and prosperity of the people was no doubt in part due to the fact that the church, and I'm quoting here, the church in New England were so many nurseries of freemen training them in the principles of self-government and accustoming them to the feeling of independence. And these petty organizations were developed in practice the principles of individual and national freedom. Individual and national freedom. Each church was a republic in embryo. The fiction became a fact, the abstraction a reality. Now, I said I was quoting there, and that you can find that quote in, in the book uh, The Higher Liberty, but it originally came from the lives of Isaac Heath and John Bowles, who were elders of the church and of John Elliott, Jr., preacher in the mid-1600s. And the book was actually written in the 1850s, but they were quoting these preachers of the 1600s. Way back in the 1600s, men were realizing that the church was an embryo republic. And a republic is very much different than a democracy. In a democracy, it's mob rule. In an indirect democracy, you elect some sort of electoral college, and they decide. They become lawmakers, and the majority of them decide what is good and what is evil. But in a republic, the leaders are titular. They have no authority to make law. So where's law made? They might have some authority to make law to deal with borders or something. But uh, they don't really make law in a republic. Your leaders aren't lawmakers. They're representatives. So where is the law made? It's made down in the courts, 12-man jury from the bottom up. This jury decides that this is against the law, and that jury decides that this is against the law. And then you quote that jury in the next jury, and the next jury, and the next jury, and they decide what is fact and law. Can injustice occur there? Yes, it, but it will be immediate, and it will be localized. And in the system of Israel, they actually had a system of appeals courts that went up through the best of the society. The men who were the men of charity, the Levites, the men who were health, education, and welfare for society, supported by free will offerings alone. This was a true republic. You can you can see in many encyclopedias and, and history books where they refer to that early Israel model as the earliest form of republic, long before the Greeks, where the entire government was funded by free will offerings that were given to the ministers of your choice. And there was no democracy that could vote and say suddenly that everybody had to bow down to this man's will. At least not until Saul. Saul was elected and appointed by, you know, elected really by the people, but appointed by the high priest, or by Samuel. And some followed him, and some did not. 
And then after a while, when they got down to Rehoboam, many did not. <laughs> but the, the die had already been cast. That election of Saul was called the rejection of God. Uh, the Americans have moved from that virtuous, self-reliant republic to a covetous democracy in a republic. Now, a lot of people say that the United States is a republic, and they actually would be incorrect. According to the American creed, you know, published and read in Congress, I believe in the United States of America as a government whose just powers are derived from the consent of the governed, a democracy in a republic. So the United States is a democracy in a republic. And the relationships of the people of that democracy have changed over the years. And therefore, the power of the democracy has changed and become more and more powerful and less and less republic. These two governments of a democracy and a republic are really at odds with each other. Today, most people, if you mention republic, they think that you're talking about an indirect democracy. No, a republic is a much different animal. This democracy in a republic, this, this process of becoming that is done more by contract, social compact, application and participation than by vote itself. But the right to vote in that democracy makes you a party to it. And so, you know, a lot of people say if you don't vote, you don't have a right to complain. But the reality is, is if you do vote, <laughs> you don't have a right to complain <laughs> because you've anted up. You've laid your whatever it is required upon the table. You know, I spoke with an attorney the other day in Washington, D.C., and I need to put it together and, and share with him the oath required for any new citizen of the United States. Most people are completely unaware of that oath and what it states in that oath. And I think that of many Americans, if they understood it, they wouldn't take it today. But you can't even you can't even get a passport unless you have a, a theoretically agreed. It is assumed by statute that if you apply for a passport, you've agreed to that oath. And we'll talk about that later on in this series. But uh, right now we're going to the people have become a nation of consumers who willingly bite their neighbor for their own personal security. In other words, you... Your security is paid for your the education of your children. You know, the education of your children, what does that cost? I mean, it used to be about $6,000 per student. I know in some districts it goes up to about twenty uh, to $22,000 per student. So if you had three kids in school, then theoretically you would owe some $60,000 with those figures. Maybe, maybe you would only owe $18,000. Uh, I know... Uh, some, you know, some schools nearby that are, it used to be six, but now it's like $10,000 per student it costs. So that would mean that, you know, I had six children, I'd be $60,000 a year. Somebody's going to have to pay. Well, I wasn't paying that much in taxes, $60,000 a year. I wasn't even making $60,000 a year during that period. And so who's paying for that? I would have to take a bite out of my neighbor in order to finance that education. Somebody who had no children whatsoever would have to pay in in order to provide that education. And that's legal. But it isn't 
the way of the church. It isn't the way of Christ. We should be homeschooling our children. If you're a Christian, you should be homeschooling your children and then gathering together in your congregations to provide the best education you could. And you'll have some parents who can help you with math and some parents who can help you with history and some parents who can help you with you know, physics or algebra or chemistry. And you pool your efforts and everybody gets a really, 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 really good education. Homeschoolers score 30% higher than public school education. And that includes homeschoolers that are being taught by blue-collar workers. People have a tendency to think that homeschoolers are always... Uh, uh, taught by uh, college graduates, but that's not the case. Many, many homeschoolers are being taught by parents who have not gone to college, and those children are still scoring way higher than public school education children. And some of those children, uh, there have been special needs children and children with learning disabilities and uh, dyslexia, etc., who would go to school and were flunking out and went home and got A's. When they were taught at home, they got A's. But when they were taught in the school, they were failing. Why is that? Why were they learning so much more at home using the same curriculum as they were learning when they were in school? Lots of reasons. And the pace at which they learn was way faster at home. So what's happening? See, the school is an unnatural environment. And uh, and at home, there's generally more love than there is at school. Now, that's not always the case. And maybe there always will be a need for public schools. But the reality is the more you move in the other direction, the wiser and more intelligent and the more learned your children will become. But you have to, it requires sacrifice to do that. So the people have become a nation of consumers who willingly bite their neighbor for their own personal security. People have fallen in love with the benefits offered by democracy. But are but at what price? What price to society do we pay? James Madison, back in 1787, stated that the Federalist Papers, uh, I think it was number 10, democracy is the most vile form of government. That's, that's James Madison. Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the right of property, incompatible with the rights of property, and have, in general, been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Yet today, in America, people want you to fight for democracy. Fisher Ames, who is the author of the First Amendment, said, a democracy is a volcano which conceals the fiery materials of its own destruction. These will produce an eruption and carry desolation in their way. Now, is this move in modern society for democracy a good thing? Is somebody orchestrating our move towards democracy and dependence upon democracy in order to bring about the destruction of the nation. 
You know, evil is very smart. They are very clever. And many people today lack knowledge. And yea, because they lack knowledge, they are doomed to destruction. But they have to love the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth in order to move in the right directions. In 1815, John Adams said, Democracy, while it lasts, is more bloody than either aristocracy or monarchy. Remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There is never a democracy that did not commit suicide. That's John Adams, 1815. So did he know that about the United States? He didn't think the United... He knew that the United States itself, by the construction of the United States, was a democracy in the republic. He knew that. But the republic was where most government took place, and most of that was in the hands of the individual. Social welfare, education, you know, fire departments, everything was run by the people, directly by the people, not by some corporate uh, municipality or... or uh, corporate government it was run by the people even your local militias were run by the people well regulated in the sense that they regulated themselves John Marshall who was the longest serving chief justice of the Supreme Court said between a balanced republic and a democracy the difference is like that between the order, between order and chaos. A republic is order, he said, he thought, but a democracy was chaos. Even Alexander Hamilton, who was not my favorite politician of that day, had a lot of goofy ideas, I think, and was quite the antagonist with many of the early American forefathers, said Real liberty is never found in despotism or in the extremes of democracy. Benjamin Franklin warned emphatically that when the people find they can vote themselves money, that will herald the end of the republic. And, of course, that's what they've done. They voted themselves money. And more than that, they have shirked their responsibility of independence. Their societies, their local societies are not independent. They, you know, one of the things that Catherine Austin Fitz is talking about is if you want to invest in stock, buy, local, buy a local ranch. <laughs> Get together in a group and buy a local ranch and so that you own that local ranch. <laughs> That's the stock. Cattle and sheep, not stock way off. Or buy a butcher shop. If you can't afford to buy a butcher shop, get together with nine other people and buy that butcher shop and work together like those families in Big Fat Greek Wedding to make sure that it's successful. Take the best of your congregation in business and the best in your congregation in meat cutting and the best in your congregation in customer service and and work together and create a business on the side and 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 build that business up and whoever wants to run that business the best 
Let him buy you out and you start another business with him buying you out. You know, go in to get, I know, I know, uh, a bunch of guys who got together. One was a property manager, owned, uh, motels. I mean, not mo- uh, apartments. And another one was a carpenter. Another one was a construction worker, uh, actually a contractor. Another one was a plumber. Another one was an electrician. Another one was a cabinet builder. And they all got together and they either bought old apartment complexes and fixed them up or they built new complexes until they had like 30, 40 complexes. And they were, you know, multi-million dollar business. And then they knew the business. Every one of them knew the business. And they were getting older and they started dividing it up. And one took five buildings and one took three buildings and one took two buildings. And they just worked it out. And they divided up the assets and they were all wealthy men by now. And they they would still help each other out, but they became independent. And this is what you should do in your congregations. Come together and start doing this. And make each of you independent. That's Ubuntu. But not lose sight of congregations of congregations. And you make that choice and you have ministers who know how to bring that together and bring that about. And the ministers need to learn how to bring that about. In a true spirit of the republic. You know, that Benjamin Franklin understood that a democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what he, what, what to have for lunch. Liberty is a well-armed lamb contesting the vote. And, you know, that, that was Benjamin Franklin's idea. And, to some degree, that's true, but well-armed in what? Well-armed in righteousness. Just having a gun, that's not, what, that's not well-armed. Well-armed is having a righteous heart, a righteous mind, and a righteous approach to loving your neighbor as yourself. Wanting to see your neighbor a success, and your neighbor's neighbor, and your neighbor's neighbor's neighbor. Your loyalty is to righteousness, to law, judgment, mercy, and faith. That is where your loyalty is. Not to some symbol of law, judgment, mercy, and faith, but to actual righteousness. This is why we are to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not our righteousness, not our self-righteousness, not our country right or wrong, but righteousness, right and right only. Long before these men voiced their objection to democracy, Plato postulated. This is Plato. This is thousands of years ago. Dictatorships naturally arise out of democracy. He said that. This is not news. It's news to a lot of people in America who think that democracy is the greatest. And long after, people like Adams... Ralph Waldo Emerson said, democracy is morose and runs to anarchy. Now, when he used the word anarchy, he meant uh, chaos in part. But also, if democracy is king or the mob rules, then soon there is no rule but self because most people are selfish 
And we are breeding a vast population of selfish people because that's what social welfare, social justice, socialism produces. Winston Churchill wrote that socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is equal sharing of misery. He went on to say that the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. It, if you if you you listen to some of the other people of of those times, the, such as the Spirit of American Government, uh, written by a professor uh, J. Allen Smith. Uh, you'll see that. Uh, it is difficult to understand how anyone who has read the proceedings of the federal convention can believe that it was the intention of that body to establish a democratic government. They were creating an institution separate from the republics, outside of the individual states. After the Constitution was put in place, and the power was being exercised by the government, the states were as foreign to each other as Mexico is to Canada, or was. Actually, Mexico and Canada are now getting less and less foreign because of uh, treaties. But uh, they were actual separate governments. This was something else. Now, that's changed, and that's morphed, and we'll talk more about that. But we need to understand the principles of righteousness if we are to seek the kingdom of God. We'll be right back. Back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about this idea of democracy, republics, government, because the church is one form of government. Now, we don't overthrow other governments. We actually uh, we can save those other governments from their own destruction. If everybody who claimed to be a Christian was actually doing what the early church was doing, which was providing the social welfare for their people through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty, while still, like the early Israelites who were still in bondage in Egypt, paying their tally of bricks, then it would take a tremendous burden off of modern government that is already bankrupt. We have a great deal of complaints that we see in the media about government not being fiscally responsible, spending more money than it has coming in. What the church should be doing is alleviating that burden with its own personal self-sacrifice. The people of the church should be doing that and why? Because it is a demonstration of fiscal responsibility. We know that the governments of the world and New Zealand and Australia and the United States and Canada and all these nations, even where they have nationalized their oil fields or what have you, are bankrupt. And they are in debt. You know, there was somebody talking in the media the other day about how uh, – uh, referring to all the places that have socialist medicine that, oh, they, they had this problem and that problem, and it only cost them a few bucks, and it only cost them this much, and it only cost them that much. And a lot of that is delusional. 
But the reality is, is it costs them just as much as anybody else, but they don't feel the bite of that cost. But their children are born in debt. And it's some forty-five, fifty-four thousand dollars in debt if you're born in New Zealand. Every child born in debt, and that debt is growing exponentially. So every child is a burden, and you're going to see what happened in Egypt. Every child was a burden. There was a debt involved, so that if you had children, you your tax burden actually increased. It's like the one-child contract in China. That if you if you have a child and you sign the one child contract, you get all these benefits: free shoes, free education, free healthcare, free this, free that, free this, and all this is free, 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 free. But none of it's free because if your wife becomes pregnant again, she must abort. Yes, yeah, she must abort, or she has an option: pay back all those benefits that she has taken for free, which of course usually she can't. But if she wanted to remain free from the beginning, simply don't sign the one-child contract. There are people in China have numerous children. They just never sign the one-child contract. They're also very successful businessmen. Now, if you want to be a successful businessman in China, you want to be a successful businessman in South Africa, you want to be a successful businessman in the United States, you want to be a successful businessman in New Zealand, you need to go to a church established by Christ. You need to gather together with other people who care as much about your success, your rights, your God-given rights, your children, everything about you, as much about you as they do themselves. Because those people will help you be successful in business, in the business of life, in the business of supporting your children and your family, and in educating your children. They're going to care about that. They're not going to care about the fact they want the school to remain open because they want some place to send their kids so that they're not around the house all day. I can't wait till school starts, I hear people say. Get these kids out of the house. I mean, it's just such a burden to be a parent. Well, you know what? When you're old and feeble, <laughs> your kids are going to say, oh, it's my parents are such a burden. We're going to get rid of them. <laughs> just like they're going to get rid of you as fast as you wanted to get rid of them. What goes around comes around. Get used to that. You know, go around and shop at those convalescent homes because that's where they're going to stick you. <laughs> My wife and I met in a convalescent home. You do not want to get stuck there. <laughs> there's some some that aren't too bad, but none of them are as good as... There's no place like home, as Dorothy says. So anyway, under the... Let's back up. What did Abraham Lincoln say about this? A coming... Accustomed to trampling on the rights of others, you have lost the genius of your own independence and become the fit subjects of the first cunning tyrant who rises amongst you. Trampling on the rights of others. You're not doing that in your democracy because this is what all these other guys were talking about in democracies. They trample on the rights of others. You want to be free? Start caring about the rights of others. Stop trampling them. Gather together in your congregations and promote the right of choice amongst yourselves. Give back the power of choice amongst yourselves. On little baby steps to start with, but as it grows, it will grow exponentially. 
and we will strengthen those who are poor in spirit. And we will become ready for Pentecost. Under a democratic government, the citizens exercise the power of sovereignty, and those powers will be first abused and afterwards lost if they are committed to an unwieldy multitude. But of course, you know, that, I mean, that's uh, uh, Edward Gibbons, the decline and uh, fall of the Roman Empire. But uh, if we read in Exodus 23, 2, it says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. That's a statement against democracies. That's an opposition to democracy. A simple democracy is the devil's own government. Uh, you know, that's Benjamin Rush who said that. And uh, let me read to you out of Proverbs. If you go to Proverbs uh, 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Sinners. Aren't we all sinners? So if anybody entices thee, consent thou not. Don't consent. Don't make a covenant with them. Don't make an agreement with them. Now, what entice you to do what? It goes on to say, if they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Blood, you mean like the sweat and blood of others? You know, the, the, the flesh of others, that bite out of the flesh of others? Let us lurk privately, you know, kind of cleverly, for the innocent without cause. In other words, let's try to take from somebody who, who doesn't really owe us anything, but let's try to take from somebody cleverly without a righteous cause you know we can go into the individual hebrew words but we'll move along here so anyway it says let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit so he's talking about devouring the the innocent the people who are in our midst who don't realize what's going on. We shall find all precious substance if we do this. We shall fill our houses with spoils. Like the woman who says, I don't know what criteria they have for uh, providing us with free housing. I haven't got my free house yet. I'm only working part-time as a servant, but I want a free house. And these other people that are working full-time, they can't afford a free house. She doesn't say... I want them to have a free house first because they work harder than me. They work longer than me. They put more time and energy into becoming something. Uh, I think they should get a free house first. No, she wants to know why she doesn't get a free house. And you might have to listen to the previous program in order to know what I'm talking about if you just tuned in. But it says in Proverbs, cast in thy lot among us. This is what they're tempting you to do. Let us all have one purse. One purse. We put all our money, all our valuable, all our rights into one purse. And then we as a multitude, a majority, decide who gets what. It says in the Bible, My son, walk not thou in the ways with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. This one purse. 
this social compact. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, and they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privately for their own lives. In other words, you'll be trapped. So are they, so are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. If you covet your neighbor's goods through these systems, it will be your goods that will be taken. Wisdom crieth out without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief places of concourse, in the openings of the gates, in the cities. She uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and the fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you, and I will make known my words unto you, because I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded, but ye have set at naught at all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. This is the modern church. They're not doing what Christ said. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when you... Fear when your fear cometh. When you fear, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. He's telling you how many times does God say, "I will not hear them." in that day. Why? Because they've rejected his ways. They've decided to have the one purse way. They exercise authority one over the other way. And Christ said not to go that way. And you can't tell me and expect me to believe that you believe in Christ when you want to go that way. When you are content to force your neighbor to pay for your child's education, health care, welfare, whatever. The church should be your small business administration. The church should be where you go to the the free assembly of your congregation if you need a loan to start a business. And you need their wise counsel, not of a multitude, but in a gathering, a free assembly of friends. You should education, business, welfare, health, everything... Just the other day, you know, I had had uh, uh, gallstones before, and I've had kidney stones a couple of times in my life. And I discovered that if you have a kidney stone, immediately start drinking apple juice, and within hours you have relief, and within a day or so, it's it's all cleared up. Costs you nothing but apple juice, which I like apple juice. You can drink it warm, you can drink it cold, you can drink it with cinnamon, you can do all kinds of things with it. But it gets rid of kidney stones. I, a guy was telling me that uh, he had a kidney stone. He thought he was dying. And he went to the hospital. It cost him almost $5,000. And basically all they did was give him some pills and tell him to drink lots of water. 
$5,000. And then he discovered that if you take magnesium, if you have more magnesium in your diet, you won't have kidney stones. Nobody told him that at the hospital. No money in that. You see, in together in congregations, you can discover these things. I'm not saying never go to a hospital. There may be times when you need their expertise. But there's an awful lot of $5,000 bills you probably don't need to pay. If you gather together and care about one another's health as much as you care about your own. It says, then they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. Why? Because you have not been calling upon one another. You have not been helped. When you gather together in a congregation, you gather together to be of assistance to one another, to help one another. And then God will want to gather with you and help you because you have that character, that Ubuntu, wanting to share. And you have to have it not only with your local congregation but through a network that reaches from here to Sydney, Australia. And from Sydney, Australia to Ontario, Canada. From Ontario, Canada to Cape Town, South Africa. That's what you need. And that's what, if you do not seek, the Lord will not answer you. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproofs. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Remember, they were seeking the blood of their neighbor, and their blood will be what they devour. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. This is where you need to go. This is where you need to be. This is what you need to seek. And this is what the churches should be providing and your ministers should be providing for one another. But they are not. But they should be. And we fall into deception. Deception. Caesar was right. Mankind is governed by names and their definitions, and their labels. This was the definition of democracy in 1928. Democracy, a government of the masses, authority derived through mass meaning of any form of direct expression, results in mobocracy. Attitude toward the property is communistic. Negating property rights, attitude towards law is that the will of the majority shall regulate whether it is based upon deliberation or governed by passion, prejudice, impulse, without restraint or regard for consequences, result in demagogism, license, agitations, discontent and anarchy in the sense of chaos. Okay, so what definition was that? Where would you have found that definition? U.S. Army Training Manual of 1928. Amazing. 
What happens if you were to look in a similar manual in 1952? And I say 28. Uh, what does that be? Uh, 20 years before? 20, 22 years before? 24 years before? And now you look in by June of 1952, the following definition was uh, altering the understanding and attitude of the American nation. And it was stating, meaning of democracy, quote, because the United States is a democracy, they, they start out saying that, the majority of the people decide how our government will be organized and run. And that includes the Army, Navy, and Air Force. The people do this by electing representatives, and these men and women carry out the wishes of the people. That's the Army Field Manual for Soldiers Guide in 1952. That's decidedly different in definition than what we saw in 1928. Decidedly different. It doesn't even refer to America as a republic, but only the United States as a democracy. Changing definition deceives the people. The multitude of those who err is no protection for error. So if we were to look at Benjamin Disraeli, uh, who lived between about 1800 and 1880s, he was a British prime minister, he said, if you establish a democracy, you must in due time reap the fruits of a democracy. With great increase of the public expenditure, you will in due season have wars entered into from passion and not from reason. And you will in due season submit to peace ignominiously sought and ignominiously obtained which will diminish your authority and perhaps endanger your independence. You will in due season find your property is less valuable and your freedom less complete. It's back in the 1800s. He was telling you this. But how many of you studied this in your public schools? If you were home teaching your children, you could all study this. You know, I recommend as a homeschooling book the higher liberty, because that's what I'm reading out of. These quotes are in the book, The Higher Liberty. It's in the chapter on deception. Ben Franklin advised that a nation of well-informed men who have been taught to know and prize the rights which God has given them cannot be enslaved. But, of course, that's not really what you're taught anymore in public schools. You are taught about privilege. You are taught about obedience. You are taught about subjecting yourself to power and authority. And that you're not really even electing representatives anymore. You're told that you're electing lawmakers who will rule over you and decide according to their conscience what is good and what is evil. You no longer have the right to decide that. You have given that power to another. It was not God that gave them that power. It was you that gave them that power, and you gave them that power to obtain benefits at the expense of your neighbor. You have gone so much out of the way and away from the ways of God and the ways of Christ that you don't even know that there is a way back. But there is. 
And the churches should be preaching it and teaching it. And you should be living it. Benjamin Frank goes on to say, it is in the region of ignorance that tyranny begins. And ignorance is what you go to school to obtain. Because your view of history has been changed by your school books. We can go through that. We have a whole series that talks about that. And there's, I mean, there's a volumes, the Reese Commission report in the U.S. Congress, they will show you that people consciously went out of their way to change the way in which Americans viewed history because you couldn't control the people and you needed to control the people if you wanted more and more power. And there are men in this world who want more and more power. In, in Christianity, we want to empower people more and more on an individual basis so that they become independent souls under God, seeking to do the righteousness of God. And so that's, your ministers need to learn how to do that how to teach the people to be sons of God, children of God. Those rights depend, those rights given to us by God depend upon us valuing our neighbor's rights as much as we value our own. And this is virtue. This is what virtue is. Nothing is beyond reexamination. In a constitutional republic, you might have some safeguards but Patrick Henry argued against the Constitution of the United States because he saw that when evil men take office, the whole gang will be in collusion. They will keep the people in utter ignorance and steal their liberties by ambuscade. Do we understand those flaws? And are we prepared to guard against them? Do we, do we want to understand them? It is not the Constitution that makes this nation great or has made this nation great. But the noble individuals who rose up every day, worked in the fields and in the factories, cared for their families, and provided for their honest needs within those families and within the communities where they lived. Just, uh, James Russell Lowe said, democracy gives every man the right to be his own oppressor. And that's what it does. And we need to repent of that. And so we do. May peace be upon your house. And may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.